30, football season's back, right? You could be doing so many other things. Why are you here at church on a Sunday morning just for us to have purpose when we come to church, have a purpose when we read our Bible. So often we can go through things and we're just going through the motions. We just know, okay, I know I'm supposed to be at church on Sunday morning. My kids dragged me here. My spouse dragged me here. My parents dragged me here. For us to have a purpose, because what we're going to see here in the text, Jesus blesses those that come to him with a specific purpose. The crowd, the mob that's just around him or just in the vicinity of him, they don't get the same blessing as the one that comes to him for the specific purpose. So even as we pray and be thinking, okay, Lord, why, why am I here? Uh, but Lord, we, we love you, Lord, and we thank you. Thank you that you are near to the brokenhearted. Uh, Lord, we thank you that as we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. Lord, we thank you for your word, for your presence, for your Holy Spirit, so many blessings that you give us, Lord. And Lord, we pray for the family, those that are going through the storms of this life, Lord. We pray that you'd be encouraging them, Lord, and that you'd be filling them with your Holy Spirit to overflowing, God. Lord, for the rest of us that aren't going through that storm, help us to encourage our brothers and sisters. Help us to stir up one another with love and good works. And Holy Spirit, we just ask that you'd soften our hearts Help the words come off the page. Lord, cut us to the heart and just reveal to us how we can be more obedient to you this morning. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18, it says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman, who had a flow of blood for 12 years, came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. We jump over to Mark chapter 5. Mark gives us a lot more details than Matthew. I encourage you to read through the Gospels. It's such a blessing to be able to see the personalities of the different authors coming out. We know that all of Scripture is God-breathed, but the Lord, He even works in spite of us, and He allows even our personalities to come out. Matthew, a tax collector, a numbers guy, he just gives us the facts. The girl's already dead, and the, the father's still here praying. But Mark chapter 5 tells us that she's not dead yet. She's on the brink of death, and this man comes and pleads with Jesus to come and heal his little girl. In Mark chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us, When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. And he was by the sea 
And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. The, the temple was made for worship and sacrifice. There was still the altar where animals were sacrificed and sins were covered and atoned for. People would also go to the temple to worship the Lord their God. However, synagogues were mostly used for teaching, for dialogue, for reading of the scrolls, and for conversation. Synagogues first began during the Babylonian reign over the Israelites. Whenever there was a city with 10 or more Jewish men, they would create a synagogue so that they would stick to the biblical path of the Old Testament. A ruler of the synagogue would be someone who was in charge of the building itself, the services that took place, and he would also approve who would be allowed to teach or read in the synagogue. You could almost think of him as a senior pastor. He's in charge of the whole building, the property, but he's also in charge of the people, the leadership, and what takes place on a Saturday morning for a synagogue or a Sunday morning for us. And yet this ruler of the synagogue by the name of Jairus came, perhaps he was waiting there for Jesus, and he fell at his feet. We read in Matthew 9.18 that he came and worshipped him. Mark continues in verse 23 and says, He begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. In Luke 8:42, Dr. Luke tells us that this was his only daughter. His only daughter and she was 12 years old and she was dying. The 12-year-old birthday, that was when womanhood began in Jewish culture. At 13 years old for a man, 12 years old for a young girl. And this synagogue ruler had to have been at the end of his rope. His only child, his little princess, is sick to the point of death, and he's exhausted all other means of healing her. Perhaps he's gone to the doctors, he's gone to YouTube, he's gone to WebMD. He's gone to Little Havana to the pharmacy, right? He's gone to the other mom with the essential oils and the hocus pocus, right, and the little white cloud that comes out. He's tried everything. And yet his little girl still is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Waiting there for Jesus to return. He comes, he falls at his feet, worships him and believes, perhaps seeing other miracles. And he begs him for his help. And this could have costed this wealthy man everything. The Jewish leaders were continuing to grow their hatred and disgust for Jesus. And yet this ruler of the synagogue, this wealthy man was willing to lose his job, be excommunicated from the synagogue, and be pushed out out of all Jewish relationships. But it was a risk he was willing to take if it would save his little girl. For some, it's a great need in our lives that causes us to let go of everything and be fully abandoned to Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's a great health issue, a financial issue. It's a loved one, a son, a daughter, a family member, a marriage. And we finally come to the point where we say, Jesus, if you don't fix this, nothing else will. At times, that's what he uses in our life to get our attention. And thank God he's willing to use things in our life to get our attention. 
He comes to Jesus publicly, believing that if Jesus would only come into his house and lay hands on his daughter, that she could be healed. And for many of us, we would see, hey, this takes great faith because of the great cost it may have costed this ruler of the synagogue. However, comparing to other people, his faith looks like nothing compared to the Roman centurion in Luke 7, 7 through 9. This Roman centurion that says he's not even worthy to come to Jesus Christ. But Jesus, if you say the word, my servant will be healed. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers unto me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. John Trapp, he tells us this. This was weakness of faith. It's far short of that than the centurion who was yet a Roman soldier, whereas Jairus was a learned Jew. Knowledge is therefore one thing and faith is another. And the greatest scholars are not always the holiest of men. What this reveals to us is sort of like we looked at last week. What breeds spiritual maturity is not knowledge, it's obedience. What leads spiritual strength is not knowledge, it's taking steps of faith for Jesus Christ. In verse 24, it tells us, So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Jesus goes with him right away. Jesus doesn't say, oh, now you want me? Jesus doesn't say, hey, why don't you denounce your Judaism? Why don't you say in front of everybody that I am Lord? No, Jesus hears his humble plea. We would do well to be more like Jesus. When was the last time you answered the humble plea of someone else? Even if it takes you out of your comfort zone. Even if it takes you out of your schedule. Charles Spurgeon said, Our king, in whom is vested the power of life and death, yields at once to this petition of faith and sets out for the ruler's house. The Lord follows believers, for believers follow their Lord. Such is the order of verse 19. Jesus does as we pray and follows as he leads. The preacher steps down from his pulpit and becomes a visiting surgeon, taking his rounds. From discussing church questions, our very great rabbi very readily turns aside to go and see a sick, no, a dead little girl. He is more at home in doing good than in anything else. Family, are we like Jesus People in need, people going through difficulty, we're there to aid them and be with them? Or are we, we think of the story. Jesus tells us the story of the man that's been beaten and bruised and he's left on the side of the road. The priest goes by him, doesn't touch him. The Pharisee goes by him, doesn't touch him. But this poor man comes and helps him out. This poor Samaritan. Who are we? Are we like Jesus that we're more at home in doing good than anything else. Be more like Jesus. But now put yourself into Jairus' sandals. Imagine your only child is sick and to the point of death. Jesus agrees to come to your house. He agrees to help you. He agrees to do what you're asking him to do. But now how quickly do you want him to get there? Hey, Jesus, can you do one of those teleportation, right, teleportation type things you do? 
Could we get there in an instant? Could you call the helicopter and right, medevac us over there? Imagine the ambulance picks you and your only child up who's on the verge of death. How quickly do you want that driver to drive to the hospital? There's something special about when a parent knows that their child is sick. It's something like very rare things in this world. There's so much you want to do, but there's so little that you can actually do. You wish there'd be anything possible, even taking turns with them, taking their pain, taking their sickness so that they can be healthy. I remember in Kenya, we went to Kenya, and me, my son, and Connor, one of the friends here from the church, we went three days earlier to enjoy, took him on a safari. We're having a great time, but then one night, he starts throwing up. We're in the bush in Africa. We are in the middle of nowhere. You're hearing the hippos at the, in the middle of the night. He starts throwing up. Oof, maybe something didn't settle well. Starts throwing up again. Starts throwing up again. Four times he's thrown up in three hours, and you're wrestling saying, Lord, what's going on here? What's going on here? What was Jarius sensing in this moment? His only little girl, his only princess is sick on the verge of death, but now the Lord answers him, and they're on their way. It tells us that the crowd is thronging against him. This multitude follows him, and all of a sudden, there's a herd of people following him. It tells us that this word thronged, it speaks of almost a suffocation, a pressure that's taking place because there's so many people. A few months ago in Asia, there was a holiday, and there's so many people in the alleyways that people were passing out and dying because of the pressure of the amount of humans in the alleyway. alleyway. That's what Jesus is going through, and the disciples and Jerry is trying to lead him in a rush to his daughter. But then in verse 25 and 26, it tells us, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And had suffered many things from physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, better but rather grew worse. So we have this 12-year-old little girl who's been healthy up until this point. Now she's sick unto death. But now we have this older woman who's been dealing with this terrible issue for the last 12 years. And yet they both need Jesus they both need Jesus at the very same time. This flow of blood would have completely isolated this woman in Jewish culture. In Leviticus 15, verse 19 through 31, this is the chapter on bodily discharge. I don't know how many people, it's their favorite chapter in the Bible, right? It's not mine. But here it tells us in Leviticus 15, verse 19, that if a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she is to be set apart for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything she lies on during her impurity is unclean. Also, everything she sits on is unclean. Whoever touches her, whoever touches her bed, her clothes, whatever she sat on, whatever is near her bed is unclean until evening. This woman, G. Campbell Morgan tells us, by the very law of her people would be divorced from her husband. She couldn't live at home. She couldn't be with her children. She was ostracized from all society and was not allowed to come in contact with her old friends. She'd be excommunicated from the services of the synagogue and thus shut out from the woman's courts in the temple. This flow of blood would only be worse 
then the only thing worse than this flow of blood would be having leprosy. Everyone would look down on her. And what had this woman done to deserve being separated from all her family and all her friends and all her countrymen? Nothing. The sickness was out of her control, yet Pharisees would judge her, believing that she must have lived a promiscuous lifestyle, and this was God's way of punishing someone that's lived a promiscuous lifestyle. To add insult to injury, to make matters only worse, Scripture tells us she suffered many things from many physicians, trying all sorts of avenues to be healthy. It only caused more suffering. Then it tells us she spent all that she had and yet was no better but grew worse. She's sick. She suffered. She's gone through more pain trying to be healed. She spent every dollar that she has and yet she's only grown worse. And friends, the same is true with our spiritual sickness. You see, sin is our ultimate sickness, and we try so many different cures, but they all leave us more empty. They leave us with more suffering. They leave us with less money, and our problem only grows worse. In Hosea chapter 5, verse 13, Israel was sensing their spiritual sickness. And in Hosea 5, 13, it says, When Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, saw his sickness... And Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. There's no other cure for our spiritual sickness than Jesus Christ. He's the only cure. David Guzik, he says, when a soul is sick today, they often go to different doctors and spend a great time and money only to suffer many things from many physicians. A sick soul may go to the doctor of entertainment, but find no cure. They may visit the doctor of success, but he's no help in the long run. Doctor pleasure, doctor self-help, doctor religion, doctor therapy, none of these can bring a real cure. Only Dr. Jesus can heal our spiritual sickness. Mark chapter 2.17 tells us that Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is Jesus' job. This is his MO, is to come in and be the physician, the only physician that can heal us of our spiritual need. All these other doctors, they leave us broke. They leave us empty. Maybe it's the doctor of entertainment, right? You ever feel good after you've been binge-watched the TV show for three hours, right? You ever say, that was such a great use of my time, right? No, you feel even worse. You have that doctor entertainment on your phone. You start going crazy on Candy Crush. Your wife sees the bills and you're saying, what in the world is going on with you, right? You feel even worse. Whatever it may be, doctor success. Maybe it's a relationship, you think, oh, man, this girl, she's my everything. She's going to fix. She's going to make things better. Oh, this guy, he's going to, all my needs are going to be met here. And it only leads to more suffering and more suffering. Turn quick to Jesus that you would limit the amount of suffering you have to go through before you're healed. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 tells us, nor is there salvation in any other. 
For there is no, un- no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only one that gets us into heaven. It's not Mary, it's not Buddha, it's not Allah, it's not Muhammad. There's no other way to heaven except for Jesus Christ. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. There's no other salvation except in him. As believers, we need to believe in that, we need to trust in that, and we need to lovingly speak that truth to our friends and family. Back to Mark chapter 5, verse 27, it says, When she heard about Jesus... She came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. We read in Matthew 9 verse 20, she's just seeking to touch the hem, just the tip of his garment. And in the beginning we see Jairus. He's at the end of his road, worshiping and begging for Jesus in front of everyone. He falls down in the crowd, begging him to come and help. And yet here's this woman on the other end of the spectrum. But she's at the end of her road. She believes in Jesus, but she's not so comfortable in front of everyone. She's been ashamed. She's been labeled unclean for the last 12 years. She probably hasn't had a human toucher in the last 12 years. Hasn't had a hug or a kiss or a conversation or anyone near her for the last 12 years. She wanted to just slip in unnoticed. She didn't want to defile Jesus. She didn't want to make him unclean. She just kept telling herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, if I just touch the hem of his garment, it's in the imperfect tense in the Greek. So this means she was repeating this to herself, almost hyping herself up to do it. Just the hem of his garment. Just the hem of his garment. And this speaks of the tassels that all Jews were commanded to put on the corners of their garments. If only I touch the corner of his garment. If only I touch those tassels. If I just touch those tassels. In Numbers chapter 15, you can just write that down. Numbers 15 verse 38 through 41. This is where we see God's commandment for the Israelites to wear these tassels. If you've gone to Israel, you see them wearing the four tassels, or maybe North Miami Beach, you've seen them, right, with the four tassels. It says, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord, and do them, that you do not follow the harlotry which your own heart and your eyes are inclined to. But that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy, for your God is holy. Where in the Old Testament does it speak of the Messiah having the power to heal someone through his tassels? Any chapter and verse? There's no such chapter and verse. But here, this woman's faith, it's not perfect, but her faith is in Jesus Christ alone. There's a danger of having the heart of a Pharisee. If someone's faith is not perfect or fits perfectly into our box, we can become nitpicky and start looking down on them. There are those, Jeremiah 29, 11, that doesn't apply to you, right? If you have a believer telling you that in, their, in your life, just pray for them, right? Just pray for them. They've been sucking on too many lemons. That's all, right? This faith was not perfect, This faith was not even completely biblical, but as long as there's no heresy and we see childlike faith, that should cause us to smile. 
Because we see Jesus, he meets people at their childlike faith. David Guzik says, even though her faith had elements of error and even superstition, she believed in the healing power of Jesus and his garment served as the point of contact for that faith. There's many things we could find wrong with this woman's faith, yet her faith was in Jesus. And the object of faith is much more important than the quality or even the quantity of someone's faith. Charles Spurgeon says, She was ignorant enough to think that healing would go from him unconsciously. Yet her faith lived despite her ignorance and triumphed despite her bashfulness. Oh, that we were as eager to be saved as she was to be healed. Oh, that we had such confidence in Jesus Christ as to be sure that if we come in contact with him, even by the least promise and the smallest faith, he can and will save us. My soul, when thou art in urgent need, be brave to come near unto thy Lord. For if a touch of his garment will heal, what virtue must lie in his own self? See, that's the blessing. Jesus didn't just leave us his four tassels. He didn't just leave us four tassels that we could go visit somewhere and touch or pray over. He left us himself. We are to ask, we are to seek, we are to knock, and he'll open the door. He'll answer us. We will find him. Do we seek for him as this woman sought after Jesus, pushing her fear to the side, hyping herself up to be obedient to what she she knew she needed to do? She goes on her secret mission. She hypes herself up. She finally goes out, touches the hem of his garment. Verse 29, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt it in her body that she was healed of the affliction. Was her faith perfect and 100% biblical? Nope. And yet the Lord answered her plea. Parents, is your child's view of you 100% accurate? For better or for worse? Is your kid's view of you 100% accurate? And yet do you not answer their plea? Do you not answer their crying out for help? I'll never forget when I used to serve early on in youth group, we had a father and son softball game. And I was thinking, okay, what's the best way to pick the best dads? I don't know these dads. I haven't seen them play softball before. So I had my crew of youth, and I did some, um, some studying, some analysis. And I said, okay, guys, how many of your dads are good at softball, right? So they started telling me. They started talking to me. Okay, I got the scouting report. I'm ready. I picked my team, and we got slaughtered. We got absolutely slaughtered. What I realized is that these young men's view of their dad's softball capabilities was not 100% accurate. (laughs) Yeah, you got to give it to them. They saw their dads as giants. They saw their dads as these incredible athletes. And it's the same with us. Although our God will never have the right view of him or the perfect view of him, he could do even more. But he answers a humble plea and cry for help. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. And this scripture goes so well with this poor woman and her flow of blood. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. Matthew 11, verse 25, it tells us, At that time Jesus answered and said, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, and you've revealed them to babes. You've revealed them to those who are spiritually babies, spiritually immature. Verse 26, even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Pay attention to verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. To come to Jesus Christ and receive this rest, to receive this easy and light yoke, it doesn't take us to have perfect doctrine or perfect spiritual knowledge or to become this spiritual giant. The only thing that's required is that we're heavy laden and we come to him. That's all he asked for. It's for us to have that humble plea crying out to Jesus saying, Lord, help me. I have these weights. I have these burdens. Will you take them? This woman was so fearful of making Jesus unclean. She simply wanted to just touch the tassel. Yet we know that she could not make Jesus unclean. The only thing that can happen here is that he would make her clean and perfect and well once again. Immediately, she was healed and she felt it in her body that she was healed. Back to Mark chapter 5 verse 30. She touches him. She's healed immediately. She feels the healing. Then in verse 30, it tells us Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? It's interesting. Every miracle is different. Jesus doesn't have this specific SOP, right? What are the specific operating procedures for miracles? We turn to page one, paragraph two, we do this. No, each time it's different. And there's no other miracle where we see Jesus knowing or sensing that power has gone out of him. And the word for power here in the Greek is the word virtue. He sensed the virtue going out of him. And in this huge crowd, imagine a herd of people bumping into him and pressing against him. Imagine yourself coming out of the subway in New York City. Imagine yourself in Times Square. Imagine yourself in Hong Kong. And there's people everywhere. And yet he stops and says, who touched me? And that's exactly, you guys laughing, that's exactly what the disciples did in verse 31. The disciples said to him, you see the multitudes thronging? And you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. Again, you got to love the disciples. You you see their honesty. You see their humanity. Perhaps they were concerned about Jesus' security and safety, right? Perhaps they were the secret service and they're just trying to protect them. Why are you stopping? We're in a crowd. What's going on? Maybe they were just annoyed at the herd of people and their personal space being broken. If we're honest, that would have probably been most of us. Perhaps some of them with good motives were just trying to get Jesus to this 12-year-old little girl as soon as possible. Master, you see the multitude thronging you and you say, who touched me? This crowd suffocating and pressuring you and you stop and ask, who touched me? And then Jesus waits and he looks around looking 
for who touched him. Now, did Jesus not know who it was that touched him? No, he knew. He knows all things. I imagine Jesus, like some of us parents with small children, hiding from us, right? And you could hear them hiding from you. They're snickering under the table, right? You hear the chairs moving. I wonder where so-and-so is, right? That's how I see Jesus here. Who touched me, right? He's looking directly at her, maybe. Or looking around. And family, there's a great difference between the pressing of this multitude and the touch of this woman who's been sick for the last 12 years. David Brown, he says, yes, the multitude throng and pressed him. They jostled against him, but all involuntarily. They were merely carried along, but one and only one, a certain person, touched him. With a conscience, voluntary, dependent touch of faith, reaching forth its hand expressly to have contact with him. This and this only Jesus acknowledges and seeks out. The voluntary living contact of faith is that electric conductor which alone draws virtue out of him. Augustine would say, multitudes still come similarly close to Jesus in the means of grace, but all to no purpose, being only sucked into the crowd. The flesh presses, but faith touches. G. Campbell Morgan, he says, he can always distinguish between the jostle of a curious mob and the agonized touch of a needy soul. Finally, Charles Spurgeon said, It is not every contact with Christ that saves men. It is the arousing of yourself to come near to Him. The determinate, the personal, resolute, believing touch of Jesus Christ which saves. Family, is this not convicting? I was convicted in studying. I was convicted at the 9. I'm convicted here again at the 11. How often do I come to Jesus just merely being carried along? My schedule says on Sunday morning I'm supposed to be here, so I'm just here. I'm close to him. His presence is here in this room. I'm in close proximity, but I have no faith. I have no trust. I have no desire to truly touch him and meet with him this morning. We aren't actively reaching out and seeking out Jesus Christ. How often am I truly determined and resolute, believing that he's going to reach out, that I can reach out and touch him in church, in my devotional life, in my Bible reading? How often do I just go about the motions knowing this is good for me, knowing this is going to appease my wife, this is going to appease my kids, and yet I'm lacking that agonizing touch for my needy soul? So often we could just go through the motions. We go through the religious rut. It's good that we at least have the religious rut and not the sinful rut. But how often are we agonizing, saying, Lord, if I don't touch you this morning, I'm not going to make it. Lord, if you don't speak to me this morning at service, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, this verse keeps coming up for us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you poor in spirit? Do you realize your spiritual need? Just how much we need him. John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
Do we seek for Jesus in this way that without him we could do nothing? I can't be a good dad. I can't be a good worker. I can't be a good husband without him. Verse 33, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. I love this. Jesus sits down waiting for her. She comes and now she tells him the whole entire truth. It's so important for us. Don't allow the devil to keep any strings on you. Cut all the strings. Leave no room for fear of what if they find out. What if they find out who I used to be? Tell, number one, Jesus the entire truth. You were not that great, right? You were not that holy. Oh, I was pretty good. Then Jesus came. He saved me. Just that cherry on top, right? And I'm a Christian. Now I'm here. No, we were stinking sinners. We were terrible. We're still terrible without him. Tell Jesus the whole entire truth. And I encourage you, sooner or later, the people nearest and dearest to you, tell them the whole entire truth. Your kids at the maturity level that they can handle it. Tell them the whole truth of your story. We give Satan strings to control us with the fear of what if they find out? What if they find out who I used to be? What if that person from my old life pops up? Oh my goodness, he's here. How is he? He's going to tell everybody who I used to be. Tell Jesus the whole truth. And your loved ones, slowly but surely, tell them the whole truth as well. Verse 34, how does Jesus answer her? This girl that's so fearful, fearful and trembling. She just told him her whole truth, her whole story. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. This woman who wanted to accomplish this in her own privacy and in her own secret place, Jesus wants to finish in a public setting for all to see and for all to know. She's telling her story in front of everyone. Remember, there's a crowd thronging against them. Jesus stops. Who touched me? She comes. She's weeping. She tells him the whole truth. That whole crowd is still there. Jairus is there still next to Jesus. Maybe you forgot about him. I forgot about him too, right? But Jairus, he's still there. He's still trying to get to his daughter when all of this is taking place. And she's telling her story in front of everyone. And does Jesus mock her? Does he knock her down? No, he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus wanted her to declare. Jesus wanted to restore her publicly so that she and all the people in the crowd would know the truth of her healing and her association to Jesus Christ. Jesus did not want her to leave being deceived. He didn't want her leaving being healed and yet being deceived thinking perhaps she stole this healing. She can't make eye contact with him again. She could never come back and spend time with Jesus because what if he found out I stole this healing from him? Jesus didn't want to leave her alone with the enemy so that perhaps the enemy would lie to her later on. Were you really healed? Did he really do this work? He didn't want her to be ashamed the next time they'd pass by. He didn't want the devil to be able to deceive her and lie to her. Jesus calls her daughter. And Jesus never called anyone else in Scripture by this name. He wanted her to know, and he wanted the whole crowd to know. This woman that had been ostracized for the last 12 years. He wanted all to know, hey, this is my daughter. 
This is my daughter. This woman was to be associated to him in such love and care as a father with his own little girl. Finally, Jesus wanted all to see that she was a doer. Her faith had legs. Her faith had action, even if it was just a tall, a small mustard seed of faith. She didn't just sit back and say, I believe, I believe this can happen. No, she believed. She hyped herself up. She repeated it over and over again and acted upon that trust. She pushed the fear aside and she stepped out in faith. And Jesus wanted her and wanted the whole crowd to know it is her faith in Jesus Christ that has made her well. David Guzik, he says, Jesus may ask us to do things that seem embarrassing today. He doesn't ask us to do them just because he wants to embarrass us. There is also a higher purpose even if we can't see it. But if avoiding embarrassment is the most important thing in our life, then pride is our God. We are more in love with ourselves and with our self-image than we are in love with Jesus Christ. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at David Guzik, right? Send him an email. But when our chief concern is our embarrassment, your pride is your God. Your pride is your idol, right? For many of us as Hispanics, how often have we said, Que pena, right? Que pena, right? How embarrassing. We need to be able to step out in faith, tell our story in a group of people. Be willing to be mocked for the sake of Christ. Take a step of faith. In the midst of all this, perhaps you forgot about Jairus. Perhaps you forgot about him and his sick only begotten daughter. And I'm sure that's exactly what Jairus was wrestling with. Lord, you answered me. You said we'd go to my girl. She's about to die. Uh, but look at this poor woman. Look at what she's been through. Lord, could you heal her afterwards? Could we, could, could, I could give her the directions to my house. Can we heal her afterwards? Lord, I got the number on the deli counter first. Can, can, you, can you help me out first? And then take care of this daughter. Take care of my daughter. And then you can take of this other daughter. We spoke of that ambulance rushing to the hospital with you and your only child, and yet you hit a traffic jam. Imagine that, your stomach, ugh, right? But then the driver lowers the window and starts talking to someone else on the side of the road. How would that feel? And so much of Jesus' earthly ministry looks like one inconvenience to another. One disruption of plans to another. Lord, I made this specific plan. Lord, this plan is great. You agreed to this plan, but now there's a great delay. Lord, what in the world is going on here? And if we're honest, maybe it's our American hustle and bustle, we get ticked off when our schedule gets hit with delays. When we get hit with inconveniences. That's something I really struggle with. I've made a plan. I've thought it through. It's perfect. We don't need to mess with it, right? And there are many people in Scripture that struggle with this. In John 11, verse 4 through 21, Jesus had this special family that he loved. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick even until death. And then it tells us that Jesus loved Martha. He loved Mary. He loved Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was sick, John 11, verse 6, when he heard that he was sick... He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Lord, what? Lazarus is sick until death, and now you decide to stick around for two more days and not get there? 
Sure enough, Lazarus dies. Jesus finally gets to their home and Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, this is all your fault. If you'd have only gone with my plan, if you would not have allowed any interruptions, Lord, none of this would have happened. And we need to grow in our trust in Jesus Christ. We need to grow in our faith of his perfect plan and his perfect will. It said Chuck Smith would pray, Lord, help me with the interruptions of the day. And it's amazing. When you, when you plan for interruptions, then interruptions aren't really interruptions, right? When you're saying interruptions are going to come, people are going to interrupt me, inconveniences are going to happen, you can sit in traffic and relax, right? Be careful with the American hustle and bustle. Be careful that you don't lose it every time you're interrupted. Perhaps God has a great plan behind this interruption. Perhaps someone's life is hanging in the balance and you get to choose between saving someone's life or keeping your perfect schedule. Perhaps he desires to show you even more of his glory and more of his power through this interruption like he did with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Verse 35 The news no father, no mother ever wants to hear. While he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? I'm sure many of us, we've found ourselves holding on to one sliver of hope. We're holding on to one sliver of hope only to see it disintegrate in front of us. Oh, Jesus, if only you come and come to my house. If you come and you touch her, if you come and you heal her, you can stop her from death. But then what happens when death comes? What's left? And here we see the love of Jesus. Verse 36, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not be afraid, only believe. The compassion of Jesus Christ. The moment Jairus receives this bad news, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus immediately says, do not be afraid, Jairus. Only believe. And maybe that's why you came here this morning, for Jesus to tell you, do not be afraid. Only believe. Make the conscience decision. Jesus gave Jairus a two-step process. Stop being afraid. Stop allowing fear to rule over you and only believe in me. Only trust me. And here we see how great our high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're struggling with the schedule of the day? Be honest with the Lord. You're struggling with your perfect schedule being bumped into and all these inconveniences happening? Cry out to Him. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. You're struggling with the death of a loved one, sickness, pain, the worst storms of this life? Cry out to your high priest. Come boldly to that throne of grace. You will obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Faith or fear, what will you trust in, Jarius? Faith or fear. You see, faith and fear are mutually exclusive. Both cannot coexist. So Jesus tells him first, Jarius, do not be afraid. 
Stop being afraid. Just believe in me. Jarius, stop being afraid. Just trust me. I know things seem difficult. I know things seem impossible. But Jarius, just trust me. Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus tells us, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. We balance that with what we read earlier in John 15, 5. For without me you can do nothing. And then you balance it out with Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Stay plugged into Jesus Christ. With him all things are possible. Verse 37, they continue on their journey and he permitted no one to follow him except for Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. I know for some of us it's difficult, but Jesus did have an inner circle of these three men. He tells the other disciples, hey, go about your way. Maybe he hasn't ministering to this woman with the flow of blood. Maybe he's ministering to the crowd. But he says, hey, only Peter, James, and John. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Oftentimes I've read this and say, Why would people pay for People to weep, people to play instruments. What's the deal with this? There's two trains of thought. One is to show how much people loved you. Right? You're paying people to weep for you, say nice things at your funeral, right? So that people can see just how great of a person you are. But one thing I've heard, and I think it's spot on, is there is no social media at this point. You can send a letter. There is no Pony Express, right? Hey, guys, so-and-so just passed away. So in order for the whole neighborhood to know someone passed away in that home, you'd have these people wailing and weeping and playing loud instruments so the whole neighborhood could know, oh my goodness, they passed away. Jesus enters in and he says, why are you making this commotion? Why are you weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. Now is Jesus being insensitive? Is he being a jerk? Is he adding insult to injury? No, Jesus is able to see things on the eternal and when we pass away, if we are a child of Christ, we're just sleeping. And one day we will rise up again. Verse 40, they ridicule him. They make fun of him. I don't, hey, who's this guy? We're professionals. We've sung at a bunch of funerals, and there's no doubt this girl's dead. She's not sleeping. We are paid professionals. This girl's not, right? So then he puts them all outside. He forces the issue, and he's the one who puts them outside. And I love the balance and the practicality of our Lord and Savior. He's not a pushover. He's not just a, a doormat. Our Lord is a perfect double-edged sword. Uh, there's one quote I love. It says, a shepherd needs to have two voices. One to call in the sheep and one to drive away the wolves. And here Jesus, he doesn't want this little girl waking up to wailing and weeping he doesn't want this little girl to wake up to someone on the organ. Dun, 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 dun. He doesn't want any of that. He pushes them all outside. He makes it a private setting. He takes the father, the mother, Peter, James, and John, and now they enter into this room. And how quiet it must have been. Funerals, they're always hard. They're always difficult. But when you have a funeral with that tiny casket, 
it's just so much more difficult. How quiet it must have been in this room. But then Jesus, he takes the child by the hand and he says to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement. And he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Again, the power of our Savior, the power of our Lord, the power of our King. Little girl, I say to you, arise, and immediately she gets up and walks. And it's difficult for some of us. Some of us, we've had that little girl, that little boy, not arise on this side of eternity. But know on the other side of that great river of death, every little boy, every little girl that has passed away will hear those words from Jesus Christ. The good shepherd, I say to you, arise. And each and every one of us, adults, those who have made that decision, are able to make that decision. If you are in Christ, after that great river of death, you will hear those words, hey, come on home. Come on up here with me. We will hear those words on the other side of eternity. Again, the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. Immediately she gets up and she walks around. She's 12 years old. They're overcome with great amazement. And he commanded them that no one should know it. You got to almost love the humor of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, uh, how is no one going to know? She was dead. She's alive now, right? We're going to see next week, there's two blind men. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody about this, right? What do you expect from me? Walk around my glasses and my stick still. What do, you, what do you expect from me, right? But we see the humility of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about him or making his ministry huge. It was about bringing more glory to the Lord and ministering to people in their need. And then just the practicality. He finishes out saying, hey, give this little girl something to eat, right? Take her to Chick-fil-A. Go get her something. Yeah, get her that Oreo milkshake. Go get it for her, right? So many things within this portion of Scripture for us to take One commentator, he puts these contrasts for us. And I think it's important as we close. He says, two miracles, two contrasting personalities, and yet two things in common. A desperate need and faith in Jesus Christ. On one end, we have a man. On the other, a woman. One who's wealthy and one who's poor. One who's respected and one who's been rejected. A synagogue ruler and an anonymous nobody. One who is honored and one who's ashamed. One who is the leader of a synagogue and the other who's been shut out out of the synagogue. One who's very wealthy and one who is bankrupt. One who came to Jesus submissively and one who came to Jesus secretly. One with a 12-year-old child and one with a 12-year-old hemorrhage of blood. One with 12 years of delight before meeting Jesus And one with 12 years of despair before meeting Jesus. All of his needs met at the feet of Jesus. And all of her needs met at the feet of Jesus. Dear reader, all your needs are met at the feet of Jesus. Hey, worship team, if you would come up. And family, I don't know where you're at this morning. Where you're at this afternoon. Perhaps you're that super extrovert, you're willing to worship Jesus everywhere and anywhere. Perhaps you're that introvert, you're so fearful of your past, you're so ashamed, you're afraid to come up. You're you're afraid to be real. I encourage you, cry out to him. Just cry out to him. A broken and contrite heart, he will not despise. 
As you draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. So whether you put yourself in this extreme or the other, all you need to know is that Jesus can heal every need. He's willing to heal your spiritual need, which is your greatest need. And in him, it flows everything. All the goodness of life, all the blessings in life flow from him. So stop delaying. Stop going to other medicines. Stop wasting more money. Stop taking on more suffering before you meet the great physician. Lay those things aside and cry out to Jesus. So hey, let's all stand. We'll close in worship. If you need prayer, there'll be pastors up front that would love to be able to pray with you. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. And we thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for just the honesty of these men and women that we find in Scripture, Lord. And Lord, how we can see just how desperately we need you as well, Lord. Just how desperately we need that touch from you. And Lord, for each and every one of us, wherever we're at, Lord, I pray that we would just sense that need a little bit greater, Lord. That we'd be reminded you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. You are more than capable of these miracles in our lives But, Lord, we we trust in your will. We trust in your will. We trust in your plan. But, Lord, if anyone is fearful, if anyone is ashamed, Lord, may they, they come to you this afternoon, Lord. Lord, if anyone is prideful, if anyone thinks they can handle it in their own strength, Lord, I pray that you'd humble them, Lord. They'd humble themselves and cry out to you. But, Lord, please help us to be more deliberate in our relationship with you, Lord. Help us to be more deliberate in our time at church, our time of reading, our devotional life. Lord, may we have that intimate relationship with you and not just be a part of the crowd in your vicinity. So we just love you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.